Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. Before we get started today, I do have a favor to ask of all of you. I did start a channel over on YouTube in the last year, year and a half or so, and yeah, I'm really trying to promote that. And the reason being is I think the content that I'm putting out here, you know, we're doing all right with some of these guests for coming on. And I think it deserves to be put in front of more people. And one of the best ways, of course, of doing that is through a platform like YouTube. Now, if you do interact with these videos on YouTube, that algorithm loves it. And that's the only way that it knows to continually share that content, put it in front of more people. So yeah, I could be a little bit biased here, but I think, you know, finding out about some of these careers is great for young people. It's great for mid-career professionals. If you have a second, head on over to YouTube, lifeasa.dot. That's where you can find it. And yeah, like or subscribe. It would help a ton. All right, well, on to the show. I want to open things up by saying it's not every day that you get a chance to speak to one of the best lawyers of a particular country. It's also equally rare to chat with the owner of a professional sports club. Well, I was fortunate to check off both boxes by speaking with one such individual. Peter Brody is a renowned Canadian lawyer and one of the owners of the NHL's latest expansion franchise, the Seattle Kraken, with whom, by the way, he shares rank and interest in the team with the likes of top producer and director Jerry Bruckenheimer, the Jerry Bruckenheimer from Top Gun and Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, as well as the current CEO of Amazon, Andy Jassy. And coincidentally enough, Peter helped structure the deal to allow former NFL player and now public celeb Marshawn Lynch to buy in too. So yeah, this chat represents quite a bit. And we were able to dive into both of his careers, including but not limited to topics like how great lawyers come to be, the mindset of a lawyer when representing a criminal defendant, how the practice of law has changed him as a person, and what drives Peter intellectually and passionately speaking. We even get into the topic of AI and its potential long-term impact on the profession of law. And listeners will also be treated to an entertaining story about how he actually became an NHL franchise owner. And trust me, you won't want to miss that one. All up, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. I know, I certainly did. Peter Brody is a co-managing partner of Brody Thorning LLP, a renowned legal firm specialized in the handling of criminal law, regulatory offenses, professional discipline, and some specialized areas of civil litigation. With degrees from McMaster University, University of Toronto, and Osgoode Hall Law School, Peter was called to the Ontario Bar in 1998. Now, Peter himself has been labeled as one of Canada's brightest legal minds and one of the best trial lawyers the country has to offer. As such, he's the recipient of many awards and accolades relating to his past and present-day work, including work as a federal crown attorney in which he conducted hundreds of trials and appeals on behalf of the Attorney General of Canada, work as counsel at every level of court in Ontario, including the Supreme Court of Canada, 
involvement in litigating many high-profile cases before both judges and juries, representation of numerous renowned individuals, including professional athletes, actors, musicians, and political figures, and representation of hundreds of professionals, including police officers, doctors, lawyers, teachers, accountants, and members of the judiciary. However, labeling Peter as just one of the best lawyers in Canada would be a major oversight. He represents a bit more than that. And get this, he is also the current director of the Hockey Canada Foundation as its general counsel and strategic advisor. And if you're from Canada, you know that's a pretty big deal. Beyond that, however, there's something else that I'm referring to, and it involves a rather noteworthy 2021 transaction that he was part of. And that was the year he was officially welcomed into the NHL, the National Hockey League, as a co-owner of the league's newest expansion franchise, the Seattle Kraken. So with all of these details noted, here's my conversation with Peter Brody. Yeah, so welcome, Peter. I'm uh, really honored to have you on the program. How are you doing? I'm doing, uh, I'm doing great. My Kraken hockey team is in the playoffs tonight. I know we're going to talk about the Kraken a little bit, but uh, it's your very first playoff game, so uh, I'm doing more than all right. Yeah, exactly. I'm catching at a good time here, and I've got a question lined up for that, and I'm dying to ask it, but uh, out of respect for probably what brought it all about here, maybe if we could focus a little bit on the law side first off, but you know, I do have this first segment lined up. It's something called Coloring Wikipedia, as my listeners would know. It's a segment basically where I just read off a definition of what the guest does. And I've got to say, you had me a little bit conflicted here because of what you just mentioned. I mean, you have so many different things going on outside of law, being an owner of the Seattle Kraken for one, you know, Hockey Foundation of Canada being another, and a bunch of other things too. But ultimately, I kind of landed on this notion of law. Probably that's where it all kicked off for you. So I did put you down here for this definition, Wikipedia definition, as a lawyer. And uh, I will forewarn you. I mean, it's a rather simplistic definition. But I was hoping maybe you could fill in the blanks for us. I think that kind of adds a, a little bit of zest to it, too. So let me just read that off and maybe you could comment after. Does that sound okay? Sounds great. All right. Here we go. Lawyer. A lawyer is a person who practices law. The role of a lawyer varies greatly across legal jurisdictions. Working as a lawyer generally involves the practical application of abstract legal theories and knowledge to solve specific problems. Some lawyers also work primarily in advancing the interests of the law and legal profession. Short and sweet. Yeah, first take, what do you think of that? I I think it's a fair definition, but I, I think when it comes to me, it just sort of uh, encapsulates the the bare bones of of what I do, and also as we're going to get into it, being a lawyer was sort of the the root of all my other ventures and experiences. It, it did start with the law, as we talked about, and as my legal career grew, so did my opportunities to get involved in other areas. As far as your specific background, obviously, you know, trial law is a big part of it. What would be something like an element to that, that maybe a lay person, somebody who's outside of law, doesn't really know much about it? You know, what what is an integral part of what you do that maybe somebody wouldn't necessarily know? Well, it depends how you think about lawyers, you know, like the law is everywhere around you and you can look at anything. It doesn't have to be what people think. A lot of people think about lawyers as doing business deals. And that's one way to think about law. Other people think about law because they're purchasing a house, so it's a real estate transaction. People get divorced, and so you know they they think of uh, family law. And 
my specialty in particular is is criminal law, uh, criminal and regulatory law. And so really I'm dealing with individuals who have found themselves for one reason or another at odds with the law or the police or the state. And, you know, I help people navigate through that. And sometimes it's damage control and Mm -hmm. it's about uh, getting the best of a series of bad results for them. Uh, just getting the best outcome that we can, even though there's going to be punishment or uh, in other cases, it's fully litigating it in a trial and hopefully coming out the other end with a verdict of not guilty. So that that's really my wheelhouse where I, I spend my time uh, is in criminal law. Yeah. I mean, there's tons of depictions of that, you know, in media, television, film, and so on and so forth. Is there anything that you would say you know, doesn't exactly hold up the way it's depicted. And maybe this element of the job is way more important and versus this other thing that's always depicted is, is, you know, less so. Is there anything like that? Well, what I would say is there's actually some really great realistic TV shows in relation to law, um, some great movies. But the big difference is, you know, they condense it down within an hour. And so, you know, you're looking at a TV show or a movie that shows you the process from very beginning to end in an hour or two hours in real life. uh, That's something that might take two years. So while people think it's really exciting uh, when you're watching it in the media, it's a lot more more long and drawn out. And there's a lot more work that goes into it than than people expect. One of the things I always tell the young lawyers is it's all about working the other side and spending the time and some people think that you become a lawyer and you were just a natural like you had it in you but that's not been my experience my experience is it's the people who work the hardest who are the most dedicated who care the most that usually end up on top there you go yeah i was kind of thinking that something along those lines as well i mean sure Probably you're not going to draw into too many viewers watching uh, watching a lawyer study or research for hours on end for for 18 months in advance of the trial. No, I, I'm absolutely. But you know, I'll tell you, um, TV and movies is a big part of the reason that I got into the profession because when I got out of high school, I enrolled in um, McMaster University for my first degree, and I wanted to be a director or producer. Is really what I wanted to do. And so I took a lot of theater courses uh, at McMaster during that first degree. And when I graduated with that degree in 92, it was a bit of a, uh, it was a bit of a depression. There weren't really many jobs. And so I decided, you know what, Um, there's no jobs out there. I'm going to stay for another year because if I do that, I can get the second degree. And so I stayed, I stayed for a fourth year and I got a political science degree and there still weren't any jobs out there really in in any fields. Nobody was hiring. And I decided, well, I might as well stay in school and see about getting another degree, a third degree. And I'd always liked law from movies and television as a kid and always had a little bit of an interest. And I applied to law school and I got in. And fortunately, as far as I'm concerned, I found my calling. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And people often say to me, well, do you think that theater degree or those theater courses or that interest in theater has assisted you in having success, particularly as a litigator? And I think it does. Hmm. In what ways? Well, part of being a litigator is is being able to 
present things in a persuasive way. You know, I do a lot of jury work, uh, but whether it's juries or judges or it's witnesses, having good presentation and knowing how to tell a good story and present it well is a big part of litigation. Yeah, yeah. You might not think that there's a connection with theater, but there actually is. Yeah, the way you just laid it out there it makes complete sense. But you're right. I mean, first, first off, you know, you, you probably wouldn't assume that, but uh, you know, it just kind of goes to show you, you know, the, this one segment I have that we just basically just went through pathways. It, it illustrates this notion of careers and career pathways being non-linear and non-traditional. Oftentimes, you know, in doing this program and having seventy-plus professionals on. I've become a pattern that I've noticed along the way is that oftentimes how people end up in their, you know, ultimate profession is not the way that you'd probably envision it. They have these interesting experiences and backgrounds, much like what you just explained that you'd probably never guess, but yet, you know, there is this crossover there. So it kind of just goes to show you. And I love that. I love how you should just share that because I, you know, perfectly encapsulate that, uh, that whole idea. Well, you know, that's one of the things that I, I really liked about the approach at um, the University of Toronto. That's where I did my first law degree. And at the University of Toronto uh, Law School, they don't really care to any significant degree what your undergrad degree was. So a lot of people think, you know, parents and kids that want to go into law, they think, oh, I should take commerce in undergrad or I should take political science because those are law-related courses. Uh, but at, at U of T, the way that they look at it at the law school is what they're looking for are people that can show they can be successful in any number of programs. And they actually pride themselves a little bit on the fact that we've got somebody who's getting into law school at U of T who's you know, showing sort of straight A's in music, let's say. And, and you would you would think that that might not interest a law school, but right. but they're interested because there can be crossover between music and law. And it's the same for theater. Uh, it's the same for somebody who might be into science. So it's, it's a whole host of different disciplines. And they're really just looking for people that have shown through, you know, marks and, and other methods that they're able to succeed in a given field and then can apply that uh, into the law. Yeah. So law really is, it's a, it's a completely open book as to what you want to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that right out of the gate here. We're kind of getting this different sort of perspective on it all and you know, getting into it. And then also how the whole profession is viewed or could be viewed you know, from that, uh, from that angle. The other thing I just mentioned quickly too, is that, you know, with law degrees, everybody thinks you get a law degree and you're going to be a lawyer. But really, these law degrees are are great degrees to do all kinds of different things. Just because you had a law degree doesn't mean you're going to be a lawyer. It may be that you're going to go to the United Nations and you're going to work on a bunch of issues that, strictly speaking, aren't doing business deals, aren't litigating. But it, it gives you a way of thinking about the world and solving problems, whatever that context may be. It doesn't have to be in a courtroom or in a business negotiation. It can, it can be anything. Yeah, yeah. To that point, actually, a few weeks ago, I had an NPO executive director on, and he has a background in law, has a law degree, not practicing law at all. But there you go. It just proves a point of what you just brought up there. So yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we could shuffle into this other segment here, uh, Q&A discovery, and just going back and forth as we have been. 
And uh, as far as getting back to law itself and trial law, I'd love to know what initially got you into that. As you'd mentioned already, there are several different types of law that you could sink yourself into. What pulled you in that direction in criminal defense? Well, well again, interested in, in being in, in sort of theater and film, TV, movies, I, I always love stories. I, I love people's stories. I love human stories. So I was never particularly interested, at least in the early years, in business deals or accounting. I was interested in the, in the human side of law, in, in the drama uh, that takes place in people's lives, whether it be good or, or bad. And I also was really interested in what I think are high stakes. I'm a, I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. So, you know, for me doing a business deal, whether that business deal is worth a quarter million dollars or a half million dollars, doesn't excite me that much. You know, don't get me wrong. We'll get into it. I like doing business. and I like making money. But, you know, intellectually and passionately, that's not what drives me. What drives me is here's a person with a significant problem. It's a life-changing problem for them. If you lose the case, they go to jail, they lose their job, they may lose their house, they may lose their marriage, they may never get back to where they are going to be. But if you win the case, it's potentially the most important or one of the most important events of this person's life. So like, let's say other than other than having a child, it is probably the biggest day of their life. And if you're successful, you've made that happen or you're a big part of making that happen. And, and that's what really attracts me to the kind of law that I do. Mm, isn't that interesting? I mean, oftentimes I think first take a lot of people just zero in on, on the dollars, dollars and cents, right? At the profession. And it's the easy thing to do, I suppose. But ultimately, like it's that. It's probably just what you explained there. You know, ultimately you you invest yourself into the profession itself and sink yourself into what could be, as you just outlined, you know, really affecting people's lives. Bottom line of that, you know, some pretty uh significant, you know, impacts that could be had there. So yeah, I mean a lot of professions, I think, are like that. You know, if you do put everything into it, there's a lot of reward that comes out in the non-traditional sense, again, of not linked to these financial aspects in so much as like, you know, how, how you're just flat out affecting somebody's life. Yeah. And and the, the other thing that I, I tell young lawyers, and this is sort of in any profession, that if you're really good at what you do and you're really dedicated and, and you're good at it, the money will come. You know, don't don't worry about the money. Like I can tell you right now, there's lots of ways to define a win. But let's just say if you win 100 cases in a row, you're not going to have to worry about how much money you can charge. I mean, you know, the money is going to come if you're getting the yeah. results. Right. Yeah. So I, I don't think you go into these you go into these things expecting that you're going to have a decent lifestyle. But again, if, if you really throw yourself into the profession and dedicate yourself to um, successfully doing cases, financially, you're going to be fine. Worry about the result first, and the, the money is going to be ancillary to that. I got this other question here, kind of you know, on, the, on the heels of what we we're just speaking about there. You know, the, the approach to the craft itself and finding success. And you've already mentioned already that a lot of it comes down to just hard work and putting in the time. But also, too, I mean, in referencing your background, the amount of success that you've had, 
you know, I think there's a plus alpha, if you will, you know, outside of all the hard work that you put in, you know, if I could throw in a sports metaphor here, you know, the goats, the goats of any sport, right? They have this different mindset that kind of goes into it, like almost a philosophical approach to the craft itself. I'd be curious whether or not like you have something like that on top of, you know, everything else that you've poured into it, you know, you, you look at it differently. You did mention already, you know, like how you, you're, you're considering the impact it's going to have on this person's life. And that's a motivator for you. But is there something else? I mean, a different way of looking at it that's kind of driven you? Yeah, a little bit. I, I, I call it sometimes, you know, I, I taught law school um, trial advocacy for many years. I don't teach it anymore, but I used to. And I would explain it to students, uh, me personally, as I call it the Scarborough factor. I'm from Scarborough. And if you're from Scarborough, you sort of have some street smart. So there's book smart, as you know, and there's street smart. Yeah. Street smart to me is just another way of saying common sense. And, you know, sometimes I would, I would teach students at law school and they would come up with these really, you know, clever but complex arguments to advance about a case. And a lot of times I'd have to stop them and say, okay, just hang on a second here. You know, I'm from Scarborough, so I'm not as smart as you. You went to uh, Yale, I went to McMaster. Like, what is it that you're trying to say? And then all of a sudden they're put in the position of of dumbing it down. It's probably the wrong word, but simplifying yeah. uh, what their argument is. And then when they simplify the argument, I go, okay, if that's what you're trying to say, just say that. Strip out the uh, eight-syllable word and just use a normal word and, and use common sense. So if, mm. if working hard is number one, as far as an attribute for a successful lawyer, number two closely follows with common sense. And so I think that that is what leads to a lot of success in my cases is I work hard, but I take a common sense approach. Mm. And you got to remember when, you know, if you're doing jury work, you don't have 12 CEOs of, of companies, right? And you don't have doctors on the jury generally because, you know, they get excused and you don't have business owners because usually they get excused, what you end up with juries is what we call T4 earners. And they're people that are school teachers that are going to get paid for jury duty. They're people that work, you know, maybe an assistant manager at a bank or a bank teller. And so that's really your audience when you're dealing with a jury. And, you know, those are the same kind of people that I grew up with. Like my parents were teachers and that's who you're speaking to. And, and, and they really don't want to hear some technical argument with a bunch of language that only a PhD student would understand. They just, right, all they want right. to hear is common sense. You know, why should we decide the case in your favor? Like, just give it to me straight, give it to me simple. And I think that that's, that's how you win cases. Hmm. There you go. Yeah. Just knowing your audience, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that, that again, commonsensical and when you break it down that way it would seem to make sense and it's kind of curious why people don't do that i guess ego gets in the way at times and whatnot but i think ego gets in the way and also sometimes there can be a lack of confidence instead of they they try and and, and bring it up to be something that it's really not because they're not they're not confident in in the plain truth and the simple argument whereas you know for me that's what it's all about 
As far as the impact this work has had on you, you know, of course, you know, financial aside and opportunities aside, but, you know, on a deeper level, I'd be curious to know, like, how it's rubbed off. I think for anything, you put yourself into it, the profession itself is going to give things back to you, sometimes good, sometimes bad. You know, it could be, you know, altered worldviews, it could be political views. You know, how has it affected you? Well, I, I mean, I've I've sort of been around all kinds of different legal environments. When I started off, I started off as a crown attorney, as a prosecutor. And so, you know, I did a lot of drug work back then. I was a drug prosecutor and I prosecuted gun cases and some organized crime cases. And that gave me a, a certain view of the world. And I certainly thought at the time, you know, this is the way to go because I'm part of protecting society. And after about five years of doing that work, I got a little disenchanted with it because it, it, it almost seemed like what I would call McDonald style justice, where, you know, every day I showed up and I was just really processing people. They were coming in. A lot of the people in the criminal justice system don't have a lot of means. They're not necessarily the most educated people. And you start to get the impression that well, am I really protecting society by prosecuting these people and putting them in jail? Don't get me wrong. There are certain people that absolutely deserve that kind of outcome. But I also could see that there is a lot of people that didn't deserve that kind of outcome that either uh, were in the wrong place at the wrong time or made an unfortunate mistake. And then I moved to defense law, defending some of those people. Was that born out of that, that maybe frustration? I don't know if that's the right word or not, but or disenchantment with it? I, I think after five years, it was just, it was tough just seeing people one after the other be put in jail who didn't necessarily deserve that result. And, and so ironically, when I switched to defense law, I now have the same feeling that what I'm doing is protecting society. So on the one hand, I felt like he's protecting society as a prosecutor. On the other hand, I now feel like I'm protecting society as a defense lawyer. And I've got many friends that are, are, are prosecutors. And having done both jobs, I've come to understand how deeply important both roles are. Yeah, I'm sure that would make you more of a complete lawyer as well, seeing both sides of it that way. But uh, it's interesting. It's interesting how you flipped over into the other side of it. Yeah, I would imagine, like when I was asking that question, you'd, you'd probably get to know intimately, you know, the, the systematic structure and flaws of the system that would probably influence a lot of the thoughts and decisions. Yeah, any, any, anybody who's done both sides. And so we we have prosecutors who have become defense lawyers and defense lawyers who have become prosecutors. Uh, I think if you talk to any of them, they will tell you having both experiences makes you a better lawyer. I, I'd, yeah. be, I'd be a better crown attorney now having been a defense lawyer, if I went back now, I, I'd be better than than what I formerly was. And I'm certainly a better defense lawyer having been a prosecutor. Is that the norm? I mean, do people flip-flop like that within their careers or is it a little bit unusual? I wouldn't say it's unusual. I mean, it, it happens. I mean, my route was a little bit different because I went from being a prosecutor to working at a, a very large Bay Street firm that had about you know, six, 700 lawyers nationwide. And so I went from prosecutor to Bay Street lawyer, big firm, to leaving that and starting my own firm where it was just me, a partner and a secretary. 
And now at my firm, uh, we're about uh, 27 lawyers and 20 staff, so a little more midsize. So I've I've run the whole gambit, and I'd say I've been I've enjoyed each part of that. It's been a different experience, and I've enjoyed each part of it in its own way. As far as you know, a little bit more about your background, off the top, I did mention that at times you are representing people that are in the public view and public cases and whatnot. And it got me thinking, like, for one, I could imagine, you know, that the, the type of law that you're practicing at times could be a bit of a pressure cooker, you know, some high stakes, certainly. But then you add on this other layer of, you know, public interest or public individuals involved in these cases. From your perspective, like, how do you manage those emotions? Like, how do you compartmentalize those elements? I mean, that, that I think could be interesting. I mean, it's certainly interesting for me to, to, to hear that. And I think for listeners as well. Like, it, it's sort of being like a doctor. Every day you, you come in and you might be facing somebody with a different problem. And so there's sort of a general approach to it. Like we talked about, you know, the work ethic that goes into it, the compassion, um, all those kind of things. And so, you know, each case is different along the journey, but you just never try and lose track of the fact that you're dealing with, with people and the impact you're having. You know, some cases are more serious than others in some ways. So, you know, you can't necessarily equate a murder with a theft of a candy bar. But at the same time, the kid who steals the candy bar, depending on how that case goes, can alter that person's course through life at a very early stage. You know, like sometimes we see these cases where you get a 19-year-old and that person you know has too much to drink and gets in a bar fight uh if they get convicted for example they might not be able to be bonded which means you know they can't get certain jobs they can't travel to the us all kinds of things and that can lead you know some people to sort of giving up and not turning their life around and you can be a big part of that not just as a lawyer and getting them the result but i also in those cases, often spend a little time talking to the client during and, and after the process about you know getting a second chance and straightening things out. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds to me like you're, you're focusing in on the individual, on the case itself. I guess what I was kind of driving at there was, again, when some of these cases get into the public sphere, it's written up in the newspapers, press gets involved, like that element that whole extra layer what is that like are you just blocking that out and just focusing in on i assume you are certainly but like yeah i you know i'm not gonna say i never read the press i you know i i do read it sometimes because i want to get a gauge on at least what some segment of the society thinks about the case or what the reporter thinks about the case but you know, does it affect the way that I litigate it? No, I, I, I litigate it the way that I think I'm going to win it or what's in the best interest of the, of the client. So it doesn't change my approach. But the one thing I will say about media reports is, is that in a lot of cases, I believe the process is the punishment. So the, the, the question I get most frequently from lay people is, well, if you know the person did it, you know, how can you really defend them? I mean, how can you go in and plead them not guilty and 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 defend them knowing that they actually committed the offense? And 
for me, in a lot of cases, like most cases aren't murder cases. Most cases are right. simple assault cases or, you know, somebody stole something. And, and so when the person is is charged, now all of a sudden there's all this stress that comes with being charged. And then they've got to go out and retain a lawyer and maybe they got to borrow money. Maybe they got to sell their car. They got to do something to come up with, you know, the funds to properly defend it. And then, you know, they got to explain it to their wife. They got to explain it to their kid. And, you know, maybe they have to tell their employer and then, and then they're in the paper. And of course, when you get charged, you're on page one, two, or three. And when you're acquitted, there's often no story where you're buried in page 37. And in right. all of that, that process that you go through has a traumatic uh, effect on people like they can't sleep they're worried about it the system's backlogged and they live with this huge weight on their shoulders for let's say two three years yeah and at the end of the day i feel that you know sometimes the process itself is the punishment so if the person has actually committed the offense trust me they've already paid the freight on this thing and so it's not like they walked out and they they haven't paid a significant price. They've already paid the price by going through the system. The other part of it I would say is if if I have a client who's found not guilty and he did it, I don't look in the mirror and feel bad about it because it means I did my job, but then maybe the police didn't do their job. Maybe the prosecutor didn't do her job. Maybe the judge didn't do her job. I don't know, but you know, I can live with the fact that I did my job. And if somebody walked who should have been found guilty, it's not my fault. Uh, mm-hmm. That fault probably mm-hmm. lies somewhere else. Yeah. Well, it's a certain degree of professionalism, right? I mean, that, that's ultimately what it comes down to, as you just said. You, you got a job to do. You, you do it the best ability to your best ability. And, you know. The, the only thing I, I, I would say is you do it to the best of your ability and you have to make sure you do it ethically. As, as long as you do it to the best of your ability within the standards of ethics, you should be able to sleep like a baby every night. As far as I got one more question within the segment here, as far as the stresses and pressures of the work, I'd imagine, you know, the course of your career, maybe starting out, like those levels would be a lot different than what they are now. Perhaps, maybe, maybe not. Maybe they're just different stresses that reveal themselves in different ways. But, uh, you know, what would you say to that? Well, I'd, I'd say when you're when you're waiting on a final decision, whether it's from a, a judge or particularly from a jury, I don't care how long you've been practicing, you're always going to have a little pit in your stomach as that decision comes out. Because when, once again, of the significance and the impact that that decision is going to have. So I, I, I still get those feelings when the decisions come in. That being said, with experience, you become a little bit less stressed over the day to day because you've seen it before. I, I'm sure it's no different than maybe the first time you ever did a, a podcast or stepped in front of the mic to interview somebody. Hundred percent. There's, yeah. there's nerves, but with experience and familiarity comes a certain amount of calmness. Yeah. Well, you're probably just paring it down, you know, to a few things. You know, in the beginning, you've got about a hundred different things you're worrying about, but going through that process. 
several times over. All right, you know what to expect from this, this, and this. But there's probably still some elements, as you just said, within your profession that, you know, when you're waiting to find out what the, what the, uh, the result's going to be, yeah, those, those things never go away. Yeah, and, and look, some cases go smoother than others, just like some interviews go smoother than others. But when they're not going smooth and you have that experience, generally you deal with it better. Gotcha. All right. Well, this might be a nice moment to slide into this middle segment, a water cooler story segment. And I've been dying to kind of get into this, quite honestly, outside of, you know, the, this discussion on law. And this is the other side of what you're doing right now. And uh, 2021 transaction entering into the NHL as an owner of the Seattle Kraken. What was that like and, and what brought that about, really? Well, it, it, it's it's a bit of a long story, so you're gonna have to bear with me. But it's it's one that all I, right, no, lay it on us. It's one that I get asked quite a quite a bit. You know, it, it started it started off because I became a a season ticket holder uh, with the Leafs, and you know I was always a big hockey fan, and I had these season tickets. You know, and I was making money as a lawyer, so I could actually afford season tickets because you know they're an, right, right. an arm and a leg. But I had these season tickets, and I got a call from a guy named Tom Pistori, who is the vice president at Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment. And he called me up. I'd never spoken to him before and told me that there was a problem that uh, they were going to have to move my seats because they were putting in an extra TV camera. And I pointed out to Tom that, you know, when I bought the seats, at least in the agreement I had, there was no relocation clause. And okay. so, he's picking the wrong fight here with the wrong guy, I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> right. And, and, and so, you know, at, at the end of the day, to the degree they could locate me, I sort of had to agree more or less, or at least they wanted me to agree. And, you know, Tom said, let me guess you're a lawyer. And I said, yeah, that's <laughs> right. And he said, look, we're going to make it a win-win. So, you know, we're going to move you lower and, you know, what have you. And he kept trying to move me. He was offering me good seats. And I said, Tom, I, I, I don't want to tell you, man, I really love these seats. And he finally said, well, what is it? What do you want? And I said, well, I have two seats. I want four. And so he said, well, good news. I think I can do that. Let me get back to you. So he said, okay, I, I've got you four seats. And I said, well, you know, Tom, the thing is I've got two Raptor seats, so I can't have four Leafs and only two Raptors. <laughs> you know, I'm going to need, I'm going to need four on the Raptor side. Well played. And he said, okay, like that's almost impossible because it's like four together, but let me see what I can do. But if I get you the four Raptors as well, we're done, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, we're done. Uh, a week later, he gets back and he says, great news. I got you the four Raptor seats. And I said to him, well, you know, there's one more thing. And if you don't do it, we don't have a deal. And he was furious because I had said, get me the four and we're done. And so he's furious and he said, "What? what is it? And I said, you have to let me take you to dinner and you have to let me pay. Otherwise there's no deal. And I really didn't know Tom that well. And he said, are you serious? And I said, yeah. I said, I'm going to be at the steakhouse at seven o'clock on Thursday. And if you're there, we're done. And if you're not, no deal. Yeah. So we had dinner, we became good friends. And ultimately through that friendship, Tom, because he was in, in the industry, was able to set me up with the people that were making an application to NHL Seattle. Uh, but it was only through that sort of friendship. And I guess what, what Tom says was a great gesture um, that he sort of pitched me as a, a great guy and somebody who could be an asset to an NHL organization, put me in touch with the group. 
and more or less that's where it went from that's that's how it wow. it all came about what a story yeah it was um it, it was born out of that and and ultimately when he put me in in touch with the group uh he asked I had to fly down to New York and sort of meet with the, the the first guys making the application. And after the meeting, about two days later, I got a, a text message from one of them and it said, we're comfortable. Mm. And I said, well, what does that mean? We're comfortable. He said, you're in. And I said, well, that, wow. that's it. I'm in. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, we haven't even talked about how much money this is. And the guy says to me, um, Oh, Peter, don't worry. We know you're good for it. I said, I don't know why I'm good for it. Like, <laughs> I don't know why I'm good for it. Yeah. yeah. Like, what are we talking about? Right. And, you know, ultimately I was able to make it work happily. And uh, it, it's been a great experience being, being part Hard of to the say, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, just the thrill of that, just one entering into that league, you know, being Canadian, I myself Canadian too. So like listeners who aren't Canadian, maybe, you know, wouldn't fully grasp this, but one, I mean, it's a professional sports, one of the big professional sports, but within Canada, like it is the be all and end all. So like, you have that element on top of it, you know, probably within your family. I think I've read too that, that you have a son or sons at least who play hockey. Yeah. I have a, a 16 year old son. He's, he's a phenomenal player. I mean, take it for what it is. I'm the dad. So I think every dad says their kid's a phenomenal player, but He's actually drafted um, to Barry in the OHL and to oh, Green, wow, yeah. Green Bay in the USHL. And nice. so... Um, You're a hockey family. Yeah, yeah, we're a hockey family. Him and I both uh, hope that the OHL isn't, you know, his last stop. We're trying to decide, does he go college? Does he go OHL? And then I've got a daughter who's six years old and she's just started playing hockey. So we really are a hockey family. There you go. Yeah, hundred percent. So it must be meaningful, and it certainly would have been meaningful at that time for personal reasons, and then you know extending out into the family. Beyond that, I mean, like, what has it been like as far as that ride so far? I mean, how they started out as any expansion franchise, you know, some struggles early on, but now, I mean, this season, as we started this conversation off, entering into a playoff game tonight, no less. I mean, oh, it's it, it's been unbelievable. I mean, you know, I was in on the ground floor of this, so I was, you know, we were making the application. And in order to to apply to the NHL, you have to sell ten thousand seats, uh, season seats with deposits before you can make the yeah, application. Okay. And I think the quickest that anybody ever did the ten thousand was Vegas, and I want to say they did it in three weeks. We did it in twelve minutes. Wow! So wow. we we blew the doors off this thing, and then you know, so the the application was successful, and then the next thing was naming the team. And so being part of naming the team in the process, and then it was coming up with the logo uh, and the colors and the jerseys, which was fantastic. And then we had to we had to build a uh, a brand new arena, and then we needed to get an AHL team, which is in uh, Coachella Valley, right near Palm Springs, and come up yeah. with a name for that. And then we had to hire a general manager, and then we had our expansion draft. And then in the first year, we finished 30th of 32 teams, which was a bit disappointing. And this year, I want to say we finished 12th or 13th. But it it is the single largest turnaround of an NHL yeah. team in NHL history from one season to the next. Dramatic, yeah, 100%. And now in a couple hours, I've got our first playoff game. So think about all the things that I just went through. And what a whirlwind it was, but what a positive, amazing experience. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I could ask you a billion more questions. It's probably this is a whole separate podcast, quite frankly. But uh, yeah, I, I can only imagine what that must be like. And moving forward too. I mean, all the other opportunities that are probably going to spring from this, and uh, you know, life experiences. You know, aside from the professional side, you know, it's just a lot of life fulfillment probably taking place. I'm, I'm guessing. Oh yeah, listen, and 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 the the doors it's opened up, and the people that I got to meet. Um, you know, we're not doing just hockey. We, we're you know, I think we're doing 80 concerts uh, at the arena. And, oh, wow. you know, I know we're we're very interested in trying to move forward with an NBA franchise as well. You know, we've we've already built the arena with the change rooms and the facilities and we've hosted basketball there. So we've got, you know, that potentially to look forward to. But just the different people that I've got to meet through the process. I bet. You know, for example, I, I, I got to meet Marshawn Lynch and Marshawn and I became friends. And, you know, I was able to help open the door for him to buy, a, you know, a little piece of the crack and then become a co-owner. Okay. Would, would I have been able to spend time with Marshawn otherwise? Uh, you know, I don't think so. Uh, right, but, right, right. You know, Jerry Bruckheimer, the Hollywood producer, director, Top Gun, a Pirates of the Caribbean, all these sorts. He's one of my fellow partners in the in the Kraken. So is Andy Jassy, who is the CEO now of Amazon, took over from Jeff Bezos. You know, meeting these guys is just, it, it's shocking. I don't know what I thought they would be like, but mm. it's, it's just unbelievable, like what nice guys they are. Obviously, very brave, very driven, but but how normal and, and pleasant they are to deal with, and then to form friendships with them, it's 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 almost surreal. Surreal, yeah, yeah, that's the right word. I was kind of thinking just hearing this, you know, at the top, you know, every once in a while, I mean, I get these guests on this program as well, people you know, within the public sphere as well, and you know, ultimately at the end of the day, it's just kind of humans talking to humans, and you kind of build up these perceptions in your mind of what they could be like based off this level of success. But then ultimately, again, what it kind of boils down to is just, just people talking to people and, you know, <laughs> it could be good people out there. There's gonna be bad people out there, certainly. But uh, yeah, you know, it's funny how that sort of, that emotion sort of evolves in, in the course of, you know, meeting these people. I've uh, experienced that a little bit myself too. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, you know, just what you were seeing there, like about just people being people. I, I mean, one of the, I don't know what I thought when I was younger, but now, you know, again, having these opportunities and meeting these people that have been highly successful. I don't, I, I'm a little bit surprised now at like how nice they are and, and and that they're really good people. Like a lot of these people that enjoy success, you know, I don't know if they were always that way, but certainly most of the ones that I deal with now that have had these big successes are actually just really good people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder, there must be something to that. Maybe some reflection that's taking place within their lives that they can focus less on some of the, the, the other elements that maybe would steal away some of their time and add pressures and dresses that would affect how they interact with others. Maybe they don't not burden with those things as much. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I don't know what it is either. I, I, I bet that that's, that's part of it. I mean, I would think that that's part of it. You know, I think when you get to a certain point, you're right, you are able to strip away certain things that maybe make you easier to deal with. Um, yeah. Because yeah. You're, you're, you're not, you're, you're not chasing, you know, a, a dollar here and a dollar there. And you're not um, consumed with things like, you know, am I going to be able to pay my mortgage or 
you know, I, I, I've got to somehow really, really be aggressive with somebody in order to get something because it really doesn't matter to me anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You've already achieved a certain level. You can kind of, you know, focus on some other things that are going to derive a different level of happiness and, and fulfillment for you. Maybe that's, that's just part of it right there. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Well, out of respect for you and your time, I do have this one last question. Maybe we could kind of draw this to a close afterwards. And it returns to, to law itself. And the segment is a crystal ball segment, looking towards the future, uh, trends, predictions, so on and so forth. And really, I mean, I could be renaming the segment the AI segment because that's where it's been tracking back the last few months. And again, returning to law and what you've been part of and what you are part of, you know, with something like ChatGPT, when it first came out, I think one of the first cases, at least buzzy cases, was that of these robocalls, of course, that a lot of us get. And I think ChatGPT instantly was sending like cease and desist letters instantaneously right back to these callers. And that was one application sort of that caught people's attention. And I think another one is like, it's passed several different bar exams the world over. So you can kind of see the impact that AI could have on the profession of law. And really quickly, the last question, what, what would you say to all this? I mean, how this role of digitalization could be affecting the, the profession itself? I mean, Chad GPT is... I, I'm probably like everybody else. Um, I'm in awe of what a great and powerful tool it is. And yet at the same time, it's totally freaking me out. Yeah. It, it's even difficult to talk about it. Again, we could have a whole podcast on, on this. I mean, you know, from a legal point of view, there's some really great simple applications. So for example, if you type in I'm selling a 2020 Jeep Wrangler for $50,000 create in, in the province of Ontario, create a bill of sale. This thing will create a bill of sale within, you know, 15 seconds that you might've had a law clerk create and charge for it. And now this member of the public can just type it in and, and get it. And I think that's, that's great. It, it, it saves the person money. It gives them access to certain legal instruments that they would otherwise have to pay for. They get it immediately. So it's great. I mean, the law clerk might not have a job anymore, but you know, just putting that aside, that's one application. Then you can get more complex and you can say, I want a written legal argument on the constitutionality of strip searches. And it will produce a, a document that you could almost submit to the court without doing the work yourself. Yeah. So, you know, it starts to get, you start going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole, so to speak. Now, the the one thing that I'm not sure it, it can do yet is replicate uh, in-person advocacy. Yeah, there you go. Now, that being said, I was just looking at something the other day where I think Chat GPT replicated the Joe Rogan show. I don't know if you've seen I don't know if you've seen that. No, I didn't didn't catch that one. And and they played it and you would think if you listen to it that that was Joe Rogan actually doing his own podcast like 
listen, my friend, you could be, you could be out of work very soon on life as a, as a, <laughs> because, you know, Chad GPT could reproduce this. You might be able to type in uh, pretty soon life as a interview with Peter Brody and have chat GPT answer all your questions for me. Yeah. So yeah. listen, man, I, I don't think anybody really knows how far this thing's going to go, but I think most people understand as good as it is, boy, it's, it's, it can, it's scary stuff. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I, I think how you let off with it, you know, when you're, you're speaking about it, it, it's a tool, right? Ultimately it is this tool. And to what degree are we going to allow it to, to run rampant within our professional or personal lives, you know? And the other thing that kind of track back to, I personally track back to is, is again, this notion of it being a tool, like how do we manage it? You know, how do we use it in the best way? Maybe for efficiency's sake, we can go down this path and it's going to help us. But if we just let this thing go wild, well, we're going to be in for a world of hurt, probably. Well, look, I mean, one of the things that I worry about is I've always seen the human brain much like a muscle, that you have to exercise it, you have to train it, and it's only through problem solving that it evolves. It evolves by learning how to critically think, by how to question, uh, by questioning things, questioning assumptions questioning questioning approaches to life and that's how your your mind eventually develops now when when you stop doing that and you just start typing things in to chat gpt the the, the mind doesn't develop mm -hmm. and and people don't evolve in the way that they should and that's that's a real danger and you're seeing it with you know stories about um university kids instead of writing their own essays typing it into chat gpt and then they say well there's programs now that you know can detect whether they've used chat gpt but now people are telling me you can you can say write me an essay on columbus landing in america but make three mistakes you know or or people, yeah. you know do it in a way that it can't be detected that yeah. you can actually ask chat GPT to do it in a way that you can't tell to cheat basically. Right. But chat you know? GPT actually formulated the essay. So, you know, man, I, I don't know where we're, we're going with this, but, and I feel like we're going there too fast. Yeah. But, yeah. but well, how, how do you, how do you pull the reins on this thing? Like, I don't know. I don't know. That's the big question. I think there were some of like the big tech leaders were calling for some of this, a pause at least, you know, the, the Elon Musk's and a few others. But I mean, certainly they have some other reasons for that, probably financial gain. So it's not necessarily being taken seriously. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, these questions that you're raising I mean, just within law itself, but then human morality and ethics and all these other things. I mean, there, there's a lot going on there and just the pace of which, you know, it's being thrown at us right now. I think the, there is some concern. Yeah, I think that I think the pace is one of the most scary things. You know, I, I mean, we're sitting here now trying to figure this out. And, you know, can I say with certainty that chat GPT is not going to replace, for example, lawyers within the next five years? I, I hope not. I don't think so. But I'm not sure. Right. Yeah, just that uncertainty I know itself kind of speaks to this point, right? But, uh, you know, ultimately where I land, at least for me personally, is that there, there's still always going to be that human element, you know, that human interaction. You know, I think people crave it. That's a byproduct of just being human. We, we kind of need that. 
And sure, there's going to be certain elements of, of life and living that are going to be impacted and maybe, you know, permanently erased in a way, like certain interactions, but others maybe could be enhanced. We're going to go to AI for certain things and others we know AI can't deliver that same level of, you know, imperfection, which in a way is there's some inherent beauty with that too. But I'm not I'm not sure that's that's true though. And and the reason that I say that is there's another program and I want to say it's called Dahlia. Have you seen that program? Yeah. Yeah. Where you can you can say I want you to do a picture and I think the example they use is of, of a monkey dunking a basketball and then it, it it will create the picture for you and then you can say um no I want the monkey to be bigger. I want him to also have a banana in his hand and you can create this and then you can turn around and say, now I want you to make it look like a painting and I want you to do that in the style of Van Gogh, which means that, that it, it would put imperfections into what yeah. is now a painting. And, and then what, what you're going to be able to do, I don't know if they can do it yet, is is take it to a 3d printer and so that it appears like it's got those imperfect brush strokes the imperfect brush strokes to it so like when you when you say you know um about imperfections i'm thinking ai is going to actually be able to build in those imperfections and you're yeah, and yeah I'm now, I mean. now you can't tell whether peter brody painted that picture or you know, like maybe we got to end this because this is starting to freak me out too much. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah, we're going down a rabbit hole and we could, yeah, have a whole separate podcast on all of this. But yeah, with that in mind, I mean, I've certainly enjoyed this conversation and uh, it's been an absolute thrill and I really, really appreciate it all. So thanks so much, Peter. Well, listen, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on and uh, I'm glad we were able to connect. So I appreciate what was for me was a, a really great discussion about a number of things. For those interested in learning more about Peter and his work, you can check him out at his law practice, Brody Thorning, his NHL franchise, the Seattle Kraken. And for reference, all this information, links will be included in the show notes. I mean, if you liked today's episode, please be sure to share. Life as a, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever that might be, you can share these episodes. You can also show further support by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to Life as a. And lastly, I do encourage you, and this is my big ask, is to head on over to YouTube. I did start a channel over there in the last year, year and a half. And basically what I'm doing there is I'm having highlights of these conversations. You'll get 10, 12 minute video conversations of these talks. So you can kind of check it out in a different manner. There will be some imagery attached to it as well. As noted off the top, if you are there, please hit that like and subscribe button. It would help way more than you could ever know. And then finally, don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm Christopher Schoenwald, and until next time, stay curious about life and living. Mm-hmm.